listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. You know, we often hear that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves everybody. In fact, we hear it so much that we forget what it really means that Jesus loves you. We forget what it really means that Jesus loves us. Today, I want to look at 211 words in the Bible, 211 words in the Bible that will change your view of God, change your view of other people, and change your view of yourself. And they're found in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I highly recommend reading all of the Bible because it is God's book and it's God's way of helping us understand more about himself, more about ourselves, more about life, living outside of Eden. Haven't you noticed that it's pretty difficult living outside of paradise? Well, it's much easier to live outside of paradise if you follow God's book, his Bible. So I highly recommend following all of it, but today we're going to look at 211 words in particular found in the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse one. Now the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors would be equivalent to an IRS agent today. Think about it in that context. An IRS agent, we're hearing all this news today about the IRS targeting conservative groups groups that are standing on constitutional values, the values and the traditional values that this country was based upon, the Judeo-Christian values, the biblical values that this country was based upon. So when we read this passage, instead of just thinking about it as a tax collector, think of it in modern terms as an IRS agent and what you would do with an IRS agent if they knocked on your door or if they wrote you a letter or made a phone call to your house and said, hey, we'd like to get together with you. Think about it that way. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them? does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
There it is, 211 words. If looked at seriously, if carefully meditated upon, if practiced in your own life will totally transform your life. We need the whole Bible to follow God. We need the whole Bible to live in a way that's pleasing to God and satisfying to ourselves. But here are just 211 words that are enough for us to chew on for an entire lifetime. 211 words that will draw you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, the kind of relationship with God that you dream about, that God has in mind for for you, that he had in mind for you before you were even created, before, in fact, the creation of the world. 211 words. It's not the amount of Bible that makes a change in our lives, it's how much of the Bible we apply in our lives, how much of the Bible that we take seriously. And here in this particular passage, it's a passage about joy. It's about happiness. It's about rediscovered intimacy with God, restoration of relationships. Do you know anybody who would like to be drawn deeper in their relationship with God? You know anybody who would like to have restoration be a reality in their life? This passage is for them, and it just might be for you too. Look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now this is peculiar. Number one, these... Pharisees and the scribes were obviously grumbling and within earshot of Jesus. Jesus has been traveling on his way to Jerusalem and he's been stopping along the way. If we've been following the scriptures together, he's been stopping at people's homes, a well-to-do Pharisee's house. People would be having him over for meals because he's making his track, giving him things to drink. And in one of these instances, the Pharisees and the scribes noticed the peculiar entourage that is close to Jesus. And they make the Pharisees and the scribes very uncomfortable. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because if you've been around Jesus any length of time, I mean the institutionalized Jesus, if you've been a religious person for any length of time, you too will make the same mistake that the Pharisees make. These people who have problems and have baggage and have issues in their life, they make us uncomfortable, don't they? See, the more time that passes in your life and mine, our initial surrender to Jesus Christ begins to become blurry. It gets fuzzy. And we forget where we came from. We forget what the gospel is all about. We forget that it's great news for people who have sinned greatly. Romans 3.23. Look with me at Romans 3.23. That's what makes this passage a little bit peculiar. Because Jesus is said to be spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners. But if we look at Romans 3.23, look what it says. For all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. Sin is missing the mark. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. We've all not done things we should have done. 
We sin by the things we commit, and we sin by the things we omit. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's standard, every single one of us. So why are the Pharisees getting so bent out of shape that Jesus is spending his time with sinners as if they weren't? See, look with me at Matthew chapter 23. Look with me at Matthew 23, verse 15. Jesus saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, same guys that are presenting the problem in Luke 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte or a disciple, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The imagery is that the scribes, the Pharisees, are spending money to make converts. They're taking time to make converts, to have people follow them. And then that's where the problem begins. People begin to follow. The scribes and the Pharisees, those who are the teachers of the law, those who are familiar with the Old Testament, we would say, we would think, that's a great thing to happen. We want people to follow the Old Testament. We want people to follow the Word of God. Of course we do. But the application of the Word of God must be followed. And what the Pharisees and the scribes had missed is that it was all about reconciliation. It was all about restoration. It was all about forgiveness. It was all about God reaching down and out to sinners who were down and out. And giving you and me, giving people then, giving people every place, all the time, everywhere, the opportunity to have a restored life, restored relationship with the God of creation so that he's not just out there in some nebulous way as the God of creation, but he's there inside our lives as the God of redemption. The God of salvation. See, we church leaders have to be in a perpetual state of repentance. Listen, if you're listening by podcast, if you're listening live right now, pay attention to this. We church leaders must be in a perpetual process of repentance because we often gravitate we often gravitate toward getting people to come to church and that becomes our passion instead of getting people to come to Jesus, which should be the passion. It is not about church growth. It's about church health. If a church is healthy, the people will come and the church will grow the way it's supposed to grow. We have to be careful that we're not deceived by the numbers. The numbers must be qualified. It's not about getting people to come to church. It's not. It's about getting people to come to Jesus Christ. And then the church takes care of itself. I have to continually repent because the temptation is that the size could be intoxicating. 
Every elder, we must be on the alert against the trap of the devil, which was pride. Every deacon, everybody on staff, I put my own neck on the chopping block first. We must perpetually repent of being enamored with the size of things, thinking that it's about getting people to come to church. We've done a good job in doing that. The Pharisees did a great job in devoting money and time and energy to getting people to follow them, but they weren't able to get people to follow God. If in the United States of America we exchanged our fascination with church growth for church health, a revolution would be on. If in church planting movements we gave up our fascination with growing the church fast and became enamored with leading people to the feet of Jesus Christ, we'd see a spiritual awakening in this country that would be like the early days of this country's history. And if we would fall in love with Jesus Christ again, we would be less impressed with the structures of the church, less stressed over the difficulties when the nets break and the boats begin to sink because people are coming to Jesus, less concerned about the structure and more concerned and consumed with the Savior. Can I get an amen for that? We must, every single one of us, exchange our fascination with what God is doing and replace it for God himself. What God is doing is no substitute for the presence of God himself. Moses knew that when he said, I don't care if you bring us into the promised land. I don't care if you send an angel to go with us. What I want is your presence. If your presence doesn't go with us, I don't care what it is that you give us. Glory to God that he's growing this church. 11 people came to know Christ yesterday when Pastor Bob Tome was preaching the gospel at the mission downtown. Glory to Almighty God. It's not about the building. It's not about the size of the congregation if the size of the congregation is not growing because sinners aren't involved. It must be about sinners, people who fall short of God's bullseye, people who fall short of God's standard. It must be about bringing people to Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus, regardless of race, regardless of sin, regardless of anything and everything, it must always be about Jesus. See, Jesus had a magnetic ministry because Jesus had a magnetic personality. He wasn't just charismatic and somebody had a magnetic personality in that regard. I mean that people were drawn to Jesus because they could see in Jesus what the world is not seeing in the body of Christ. They saw in Jesus hope. They saw in Jesus forgiveness. They saw in Jesus restoration. They saw in Jesus humility, which is attractive to God.
The Pharisees were turned off. The scribes were turned off. The people who knew the Old Testament, knew the Bible, were turned off by Jesus because they had replaced love for God. Watch this. For love for the word of God. You say, well, isn't that one and the same? No. It's possible to memorize the scriptures. It's possible to be in love with the scriptures, to be in love with education and not to be in love with the God who gave us his word. It's true that you can't serve, you cannot love a God you do not know. But don't forget that the purpose of studying the scriptures, the reason why we preach the Bible here at Grace Fellowship, the reason why any church should be preaching the Bible is to get people to learn how to discover and pursue God deeply. You know what's interesting about Jesus is that as he's about his father's business, as he's traveling, he's the first model of what a disciple looks like. You know, when we get to Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. As you're going is what it means. As you're going. And what do we see Jesus doing? As he's going to Jerusalem, he's making disciples. Yes, he stops at a synagogue here and a synagogue there, but he's stopping at houses. And along the way, the message is getting out that really, really, there's hope for me. Really? My adultery is not an obstacle for God? Really? You mean my problem with pornography is not an obstacle for God? Really? Where is this guy? You mean my foul mouth as a fisherman? Who was Peter? Who was James? Who was John? That's not so offensive to Jesus that he's going to push me away like the Pharisees did, calling me unclean, unworthy. You mean these thoughts that go through my mind, between my ears, sometimes I need something more than a Q-tip to clean out what's in there. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you think just because I'm a pastor that I don't struggle with the things that you struggle? You think as I'm channel surfing, I have some type of supernatural presence around me that protects me from channel surfing in the wrong places or on the internet from being tempted as you are? You think you'll ever find a pastor who does not go through the same things that you go through? I struggle with the same things you struggle with. I do. I have thoughts that come into my mind at times where I just, boy, if anybody knew the thought that came into my mind, I would be locked up for it, and you would too. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only reason why I preach the Bible, the only reason why I point people to Jesus is because there's no hope in following me. There's no hope in following you. There's no hope in following anybody on this earth. There's only hope in following the one person who walked this earth, and his name was, and his name is, Jesus. And he was magnetic. Amen. 
And it's fascinating. You know, if we look at Luke chapter 7, the kind of people that were following Jesus, look with me at Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Jesus speaking about himself, the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, acting as a commoner with the other people, not the way the Pharisees were, who put barriers up. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Look at that. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see that word? A friend? A friend of IRS agents. A friend of sinners. The implication is that there was something about this group of people that were following Jesus where their sin was especially known. Maybe people with alcohol problems. People who had addictive problems, addictions to things. Addictions aren't just 21st century issues. Something particularly about this group of people, they were known to be sinners, and yet Jesus says, you're upset with me because my friends are needy. You know, if Jesus was characterized by having friends, who were tax collectors and notorious. It teaches me something about what's going to happen in my life. It teaches you something about what must happen in your life if you are following Jesus. If you are following Jesus, then sinners will be following you. If we are a church that is really reaching out to sinners, messed up people, notorious people, people who don't have their lives together. We will either become more Pharisaic and upset and Jesus will hear our grumbling the same way he heard the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, or we will embrace Jesus and let the sinners come because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, there's not a person on the face of this earth who's an exception to Romans 3.23. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. All of us in need of somebody saying, there's hope for you. There's hope for everybody. There's hope for anybody. August 19th, 2012, I was standing next to a 79-year-old man who looked like he had gone through World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, and both conflicts in the Gulf. Standing there by his bedside in the hospital. He grew up in Brooklyn, was a city boy, played stickball in the streets using the manhole covers as home base with a broom handle. Taught me how to play baseball and how to round first base with your left foot so you'd be in good position for second base. But something went wrong along the way in my relationship with my father. You know anybody who has a problem with their father? Or do you know anybody who has a problem with their son or their daughter? I stood by the bedside of my father who was stricken with pancreatic cancer and wanted nothing to do or at least very little to do with God. 
his whole life. And I had tried and I had tried and I had tried to share the gospel with him, to give him the message of salvation repeatedly, and he wanted nothing to do with it. And he didn't know it, and neither did I, but he was nine days away on August 19th from his death. Nine days away! An hour earlier, I had shared the gospel with him again, and he had said, I want nothing to do with that. When you come back from your trip, you and I are going to have a talk about your, and then an expletive came out of his mouth. That was an hour earlier. But then a light bulb went on in my head as I stood beside his bed, and I asked him again, do you want to give your life to Christ? He said, no, I can't. I said, Dad, do you have a problem forgiving yourself? And he began to weep. There's something about the human condition that age is oblivious to sorrow. Age has nothing to do with repentance. Age has nothing to do with forgiveness. Age has nothing to do with being any type of a hindrance to the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And when I asked my dad, do you have a problem forgiving yourself? He began to weep and he said, yes, I do. I said, oh, dad, it's time. Jesus wants to forgive you of all of your sins. You want to give your life to Christ now? He said, yes, I do. And then the floodgates opened. He began to weep. I led him in prayer of giving his life to Jesus as I sat there with my eyes wide open. We had waited for decades for this moment. And as I'm leading my father in a prayer to accept Jesus, his arm went out as if he was embracing him and his other hand went over his heart. It was so real and so genuine. See, my father understood for the first time something that many of us in the body of Christ cannot get through our thick heads. Jesus is for sinners. Before you came to know Christ, you were a sinner. And for all intents and purposes, you were the worst one on the planet. God's not comparing you to Saddam Hussein. He's not comparing you to the militants in ISIS. He's not comparing you to anybody else Your sin was enough to make you guilty before God. My sin is enough to make me guilty before God. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners then. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners today. And if you are following Jesus, then the sinners must be following Jesus you. And if you don't have friends who are tax collectors and sinners in some capacity, it could be that you are not following the biblical Jesus. Ouch. We don't need to bring people to church. We need to bring people to Jesus. In fact, I'd like to declare September as the official Invite Your Friend to Jesus Month in York, Pennsylvania. In fact, I want to challenge and encourage the podcast listeners to make September the official Invite Your Friend to Jesus Month in your area. 
Meaning that those people in your life, the people who you think are beyond reach, the people who you think are insulated from the power and presence of God, are only insulated from the power and the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, the restoration of God, the reconciliation of God in proportion to your willingness and mine to get out of our comfort zone and give them a hug. Love them, reach out to them, pursue them. See, the gospel is all about God becoming flesh while we were still sinners, Christ dying for us. It's not that we chose God, but that he chose us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth son in this way. This is how he loves. And the quote-unquote righteous people who had it all together, at least outwardly, but inwardly, they were just as messed up as everybody else. So you don't think that just because somebody else looks like their life is together and their life is organized, that they are a righteous person, it more worthy of forgiveness than you are. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So let's breathe a sigh of relief. Let's loosen up our belt buckles a little bit. Let's relax and stop trying to put on pretenses around everybody else as if we're something we're not. The fact of the matter is that given the right circumstances, you too could be Hitler. It is the undeserved favor of God. that caused the gospel writer John to say the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and lived among us for a while. You see, it really is about bringing people to Jesus. It really is about discovering and rediscovering what it's all about that we have nothing to offer God other than surrendered lives. And then God does everything else. That's what it's about. You notice what this passage of Scripture teaches us? The amazing thing here is that Jesus is, again, being absolutely audacious. Either out of his mind or right on point, look what he does. He tells them a parable, verse 3, Luke 15. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them? This is the typical size of a herd in that day. Typical size, average size would be 100. He doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then look what he says, just so I tell you, Look at the authority of Jesus. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. It's a polite way of not using the personal name of God. More joy in heaven. How do you, Jesus, know about joy in heaven unless, Jesus, you know about joy in heaven? Who are you, Jesus, to speak with authority about heaven unless you left heaven to come down to this place outside of Eden and to help tax collectors and sinners, people who struggle with sexual addiction and drug addiction and problems with their mouth and problems with pride and problems with the sin of self-protection, problems with control, which, by the way, is like the sin of witchcraft. 
You cannot seek to control the circumstances in your life and allow God to control the circumstances of your life and be delighting in him. You got to make a choice. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, each one worth a day's wages, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? You would do that if you lost a day's wages and you knew it was someplace in your house. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy over the angels of God. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's what an angel is. Who is Jesus to talk about What angels do when one person repents, unless Jesus knows what the angels do when one person repents. This church ought to be a perpetual party of people left and right all over the place coming to Jesus Christ, and the church will take care of itself. Yes, it gets us out of our comfort zone. Yes, we don't have systems in place to accommodate. Neither did the early church when the nets were breaking and the boats were sinking and they had disputes over the distribution of food. If God is really moving and we are really moving with him, it will get us out of our comfort zones. How about embracing that? That's awesome. If you can contain, if I can contain what God is doing, then maybe it's not really God doing it after all. It's not about ministry. It is about the movement of the Spirit of God. And what Jesus is doing here, right on point, is placing himself at the center of God's plan of redemption, restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness, saying, yes, I want these sinners to come. There's hope for them. No matter what they've done, no matter what their background is, no matter what their baggage is, they can be and they will be forgiven, unlike the self-righteous people who don't understand that repentance is necessary, who don't understand that I am the Messiah. Some people will look at a passage of Scripture like this and say, well, listen, see, Jesus wants sinners to follow him, and I don't need to change anything in my life. God's going to accept me. See, Jesus accepted people. Jesus had tax collectors and sinners and messed up people following him. So don't tell me about my sin. Don't tell me about my problem. No, When we walk closely with Jesus, we are grieved over the sin in our own lives, we're grieved over the sin in other people's lives, and we realize the importance of baggage. Have you tried to fly on a commercial airline lately? Those of us who are older know it was much easier years ago. Even though we get frustrated when very clearly the announcement is given repeatedly, you can read the announcement and there's something there by the ticket agent that shows you the proper size of a carry-on bag and there are people with two or three, there used to be two or three oversized bags, they let them on anyway, and you get in at the end of your flight, at the end of the check-in, and there's no room to put anything in the overhead storage because knucklehead in front of you had three oversized bags. 
Who's the bigger knucklehead, the agent who let them on the plane or the guy or the gal who had the three bags? I don't know. Not anymore. The regulations are strict now. You have to have only one carry-on. It must be a certain size, and if not, they won't let you on the plane or you have to get rid of your baggage. You know, that's what it's like to follow Jesus. You got to check your bags. You got to get rid of your baggage. Jesus says it, not me. Yes, you can be a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice that the passage here within this section of 211 words is the teaching of repentance. Just as I tell you, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents then over 99 righteous persons who have no repentance. Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The idea of repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change in lifestyle. When we draw near to Jesus and we realize our sin, there comes a point where certain things are no longer acceptable, where Jesus is the ticket agent. And he's saying to us, you know what? You can get on the plane. Check your baggage. All are welcome, but repentance is required. See, it's not biblical at all to suggest that Jesus wants to accept me just as I am without change. Follow me on this one. Yes, Jesus accepts you just as you are, but then Jesus will change you. You cannot change yourself. All Jesus asks you to do is to repent. Have a change in your mind, a change in your heart, which will lead to Jesus changing your lifestyle. All Jesus asks of you and of me is to check the baggage and get on the flight. It's leaving for where? For greener pastures. It's leaving for the glory of God. Jesus is moving and he wants you and he wants me to move with him. Tax collector, IRS agent, sinner, person struggling, welcome aboard. But when we're really following Jesus, there comes a point where what was acceptable at one time is no longer acceptable because of repentance. There comes a point where what we thought was enough to God and enough for God is not enough for God. How can we outgive the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God that now we're seeing again freshly? How did God so love the world? He loved the world so much that he would accept people like you and people like me. The worst type of outcasts possible in that day were the tax collectors and these people who had such sin in their lives that they were overtly, visibly recognized as the gross sinners, the big time sinners. And Jesus was friends with them. Jesus embraced them because that's what the gospel is in the first place. That's what it's all about in the first place. It's what it's about in the beginning. It's about what it's what it's about in the middle. It's it's what it's about at the end. It's all about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all Jesus is asking of us is to check the baggage. Let him make all the change and all the transformation in our lives. And you know, at the end, everything will come out just right. 
been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.